You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast. Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. You're probably expecting David Frizzell right now, but I'm the producer of the podcast, Danny Riando. And today is a very special episode of the show. After four years, David has finally reached his 100th episode. And I thought the best way to celebrate that milestone was to turn the tables on David and interview him for once. David has a really unique story to share. He started his career as a teacher, but ended up in the corporate world. Now he helps to create better teamwork through his company, Team Guru. He's got a lot of important ideas about how to make teams work better together. A simple idea, but one that most companies are woefully bad at. So over the next hour, David and I are going to talk about some of those ideas, and we're going to reflect back on the last 100 hours of podcast episodes he's created. He's going to pick some of his favorite moments and some of his most important lessons. So I hope you enjoy this special episode of the Team Guru Podcast. Hi, David. How are you? I'm great, Danny. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for taking time to do this. I know you were somewhat trepidatious about you being the guest on your own <laughs> podcast. I was a little bit. I But I tell you, though, I have absolutely warmed to the idea, and I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks now. That's good. You know, it's been uh, two years since you and I started working together, believe yeah. it or not. It'll be in May That's of 2017. Amazing, isn't it? I know how quickly it's passed. We met uh, via Upwork, yeah. and that's someone I started helping um, with the podcast. You yourself, though, it's almost three years since the podcast started now? It is. It, well, it was July 2015. Wow, it's coming up on four years. Coming up on four years, exactly. So 100 episodes in four years. That sounds kind of pedestrian, doesn't it? Not really. I think it's uh, I, the thing about this, I, I have a lot of clients that I help produce podcasts all over the world. And the hardest thing is consistency, just yeah. to keep doing it. And that's yeah. what I admire about you, that you've done it every two weeks. Uh, for four years. it's. Yeah. I'm sure, especially with a family and a thriving business, it hasn't been easy all the time to meet those deadlines. It hasn't, you know, but and I've actually got a story about that that I'll tell in a minute. But just to explain to everyone, and Danny, you're going to have to wrestle control off me from time to time because I'm used <laughs> to be in charge of these conversations. But to explain to everyone, Danny is, is I guess I, I describe you, Danny, as, as the producer of the podcast. I don't know if that's really true. I don't know if that's the real description. I have a couple of people helping me with the podcast, and that has evolved over time. And I record, I do the research, I interview all the guests, and I find the guests mostly. But what I do is record the the, the audio, and I send that to a, a guy in the Philippines who I adore and respect. His name's Jerson, and Jerson works magic with the actual audio. And then when the audio is ready, I shuffle that across to Canada to where Danny is, and Danny does everything else. So once I've pressed stop on recording the episode, I don't touch it again. Jerson and Danny do everything else. So what, what do you do, Danny? Well, from the moment I get the audio, I download it, listen to the episode, write the show notes, upload it to both SoundCloud and then to your website. Then I take some clips and make uh, Facebook videos for promotion. I write a MailChimp email blast and other kind of promotional things like that. So yeah, just basically try and get as many ears on the podcast as possible. Yeah. And you've done an amazing job from the time that you came on board. We have gone, I, I think I had sort of crept up to kind of four or five or 600 listens per episode when you came on board. And that was starting from a point of 150 or 200 listens for my first few episodes. You have taken it up to, well, I think our, our biggest episode is 11,000, and most of them get somewhere between five, six, seven thousand listens these days. That's great. And I think it had lots, has a lot to do with the, the content and the quality of the interviews. Even somebody for me that's not you know, directly related in you know, kind of the corporate world, as it were, I still have taken a lot from these being able to listen to them every week. But <laughs> you know, before we get more into, into that, we should maybe start from the beginning because I find your journey particularly interesting because you weren't you have a you're a management consultancy team guru which you can find at teams.guru as your website but that's kind of came later in life you, you were a teacher for a lot of years prior to that can you talk about that transition from one to the other from teacher to, to management consultant yeah I, 
I'd love to. It's it's a nice story, and I don't tell it very often because I don't want to bore people with it. But it's something that I think about a lot. So I became a teacher by accident. I, one of my very good friends always reminds me that he called me on the day after high school when we find out what we get into at uni. He called me and he said, congratulations. And I said, what? Because I hadn't checked it yet. He said, you got into something. And we both looked up because you just get a code. And we both looked up what I got into and it was teaching. And I said, oh God, I don't even remember writing that down. So I, I wasn't a career focused guy at the end of high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I got into teaching. So I went along to uni for four years. And as my four-year degree evolved, I actually really started to feel passionate about it. So I enjoyed the concept of teaching. I I enjoyed the beginning of my career as a teacher. And in hindsight, teaching is a fabulous starter career. I mean, it's a fabulous career if you want to do it until the day you retire as well. But what it, the, the purpose it served for me was as a fabulous starter career. I learned so many fabulous skills. I was originally a high school English teacher. So I I got that core technical knowledge about English and how to structure language and everything that goes with that. But at the same time, for I think 10 or 11 years of my life, I stood in front of a class of people for six hours a day and had to learn how to inform, engage, and entertain. And I was probably really bad at it in my first few years of teaching, but you just can't help but learn. And this is the skill that all classroom teachers carry around with them that I have to say some of them kind of take for granted. They don't realize what kind of a value that skill has in the real world. It is the skill of facilitation, the skill of engaging an audience. So that's what I was developing. And for a long time, I just thought I was being a teacher. And and if you had have asked me back then, I would have said, I want to be a school principal. I want to be in charge of a big school. That was my, that was my sort of ambitious pursuit. And then eventually I started to to realize that, hey, maybe there is something else out there in the world. And and I tell you what the catalyst was, was when I met my now wife. So my now beautiful wife, Sally, who uh, a lot of listeners know actually, because a lot of listeners are local people involved in the the community or the corporate community that I'm part of. Sally is a, a very strong, powerful, smart, professional woman and she was really the first person that I had ever dated who was outside the teaching world, I think. I'd had a series of teacher girlfriends, and it was all very insular to the career. And And Sally gave me this view. She was quite senior already at Rio Tinto when I met her. And she gave me this view of this corporate world that existed that really placed a value on this skill set that I'd developed. So that's when this the thinking started to change. When I met Sally, well, not long after I met Sally, I, I got my first few gigs as a deputy principal. So Danny, I, I want, as I said, I wanted to become a principal. I think you call it assistant principal over there. So I, I took a few jobs as an assistant principal. That's where you're kind of second in charge in a school. And because I had such close proximity to the principal there in those roles, and I'd already always said that I wanted to be a principal, I actually started to question that. I thought, uh maybe this isn't for me. And at the same time, I've got this parallel discovery of the outside world through Sally. And I guess the crunch came when she said, because she at that point was hiring consultants to run workshops for her, to run team workshops and strategy workshops and all of those kind of things. And she said, you know, I use this guy a lot who is like you, but he's 10 years older. He started off as a school teacher He's developed all these skills. He is a fabulous facilitator, which is just essentially what he used to do in the classroom. She said, I think you should meet him. So I, I met this guy, Daniel Yule. He's the, the managing director, the owner of 5D Consulting. We had lunch and I remember walking away from lunch, blown away by this guy's clarity. He's so articulate and smart uh, and he seemed to just thoroughly enjoy the work that he did. And I also remember he turned up to our lunch in a suit. And I was kind of impressed by that because I was a school teacher and I didn't meet many people in suits. So I went home and thought about it. And it was coming up to school holidays, Christmas holidays, which for us in the Southern Hemisphere are our long holidays. We get six weeks. And I normally at that point had spent six weeks every year playing golf and bumming around with my other teacher friends and just generally enjoying life. But because I was so ready for this change, I, I said to Daniel, I, I gave him a call or shot him an email or something. And I said, you know, I've got six weeks holiday coming up. Is there any chance I could come and work for you for free in your consulting firm? 
And he he replied immediately. So he's seeing free labor hire, someone who can come along and do some of these odd jobs around the place uh, that he hasn't got time to do. And he said, absolutely, you can. So on my first day of school holidays, I I packed a bag, I put on my good clothes, which I probably was poorly dressed for the corporate world back then. And I went into the city and started work as an unpaid intern at 5D Consulting at the age, I might say, Danny, of 34. So I was a pretty old unpaid intern. And that's where it all started. I did six weeks there at 5D Consulting over the summer of 2010, 2011 here in Brisbane. And at the end of it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairy tale story. At the end of it, Daniel offered me a full-time job and I never went back to teaching. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the, I guess, the connection or the similarities between working as a teacher and working as a management consultant. And until you started describing it there, I thought the two seemed rather different. But I suppose when you think about it more, it is just about managing people. And if you think about it even more deeply, we're all just a bunch of kids at the end of the day. There are no grownups at the end of the day. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about the, the, I guess, what you learned as a teacher and how that translated into, into helping make teams work better? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of lessons, and I think Steve Jobs says this, you you put the dots together in hindsight. So I look at my progress as a teacher, even within my career in education, and I was learning all of these really valuable lessons in a in a logical order that I didn't realize the value of as the time at the time. So the I tell you though, the part of the the bankable, and I'll revisit this from what I said earlier, the bankable experience that I had. The thing that people were willing to pay me to do right from the beginning of my time as a management consultant was stand in front of an audience and engage for a day. Because so often people in the corporate world, they want to take their team away from work and they say, we need to spend time talking about ourselves as a team, or we need to spend time clarifying the work that we've got to do, or whatever it is that they that itch that they've got to scratch for, for themselves and their team. So they've taken their team of eight or 10 or 12 or 15 people offline for the day. So that's that's 15 salaries that are not actively producing for the company that day. And they're willing to pay someone to stand in front and conduct a conversation that gets them somewhere. And that's the thing that I was able to do right from day one of my consulting career and do it in a way, and I find this really important, that they actually enjoy. I love looking around the room in the workshops I conduct and see nods and smiles on faces, people who are happy to be there, people who feel as though this is worth their while, and it's actually a kind of enjoyable day. That's what I I feel is my core skill, and that's the skill that I think a lot of teachers already have that they just don't understand has such a broad application. So that's the one thing. That's the bankable skill, Danny. And the other thing is, yeah, it's the the managing of human beings. And, And if I can make a grade nine English class work, because kids have to do English, so most of the kids sitting in front of you don't really want to be there. If I can make that work, and I did for a decade, then I can make a professional corporate setting work because people are even more engaged. People are smarter, more willing to engage, or maybe they're more developed. They're more willing to engage in productive conversations, and they have a greater sense of purpose. So really, Life is much easier for me these days than it was when I was a teacher because the clients I'm working with are adults, they're engaged, they're more mature, and they value having quality outputs. Well, it's nice to hear that there are actual grown-ups in the world then. (laughs) Everyone are just kids in pockets. (laughs) Well, the other similarity too that it strikes me is that school and work are similar in the fact that you know at school we're all just a group of strangers thrust into a classroom only mm-hmm. on the because we're in the we're the same age group so too yeah. at work just a bunch of strangers all thrown together because we've been hired together and the personality conflicts that is engendered by that it's got to be a big part of what you have to deal with when you're coming into a new a business that you're trying to help out or am i right in saying that just trying to manage personality conflicts it is and to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time managing personality conflicts because I don't tend to often be embedded within teams. I tend to come in and run workshops, work with the leader a little bit, come in and out at different periods of the year or over a couple of years. So that day-to-day stuff of managing conflicts is not what what I do a lot of. But I, I tell you what I do do is try and lift the team above that and get them to think about, hey, you don't, you don't have to be best friends with everyone who's in your class or in your team. 
But if we have a real clarity of purpose, if we know what this team is supposed to be achieving and delivering for the organization or the department or whatever it is, then we can rise above that. And, and more importantly, or just as importantly, if we know what everybody's role is within the team, what you do, what I do, how our work overlaps and collides and relies on each other, then again, we can rise above the personality problems. I often say you don't need to love each other. You don't need to want to invite each other over to barbecues on a Saturday night at your house. But if you know what your colleagues do, and more importantly, if you respect the contribution that they make, then often that's enough for a team. Now, if we were all to nominate the best team we've ever been part of, our favorite team ever, most of the time we would say, hey, we did all these great things. We knew what we achieved. We knew what role we played, but we also got on really well as human beings then that usually makes our best experiences as a team. And usually it takes that, that we actually do like the people in our team. But you don't always have to like them to be a functional, positive, good producing team. You know, I spent most of my professional life in big broadcasting companies, Mm. radio and television companies. And I found myself kind of allergic to those institutions and the way that they were structured as so many, I think, corporate environments are kind of a moribund feeling. Things are just done by rote because mm. that's just how they've been done. And it's very the opposite of human-centered, whatever that is. And yeah. that's why I learned so much listening to the podcast about how you really try to encourage a different way of thinking about organizing these institutions, that it doesn't have to be like this. And I just wonder when you started to think outside the box like that. Um, was yeah. it because maybe you didn't come from a corporate background that you could kind of see outside the box that, you know, it doesn't have to, like, for example, the most recent uh, episode in 99 is all about just boring meetings, just wasting everyone's time. It was one of the banes of my existence, as it is for many people that live in a corporate environment. But can you talk more about that, about how you were able to start to think outside the box a little bit? Yeah, look, there's there's a fair bit in that. And first of all, I want to say, Dan, it, I can't tell you the pleasure it gives me to hear you say that even though you're listening to the podcast from a work point of view, like you're getting your job done by listening to the podcast and doing the show notes, the fact that you get something out of it thrills me no end. And from a podcasting point of view, that's what the reward is all about. If there were only five people who listened to my podcast, but those five people got a heap out of it and loved it and wanted to listen every fortnight and applied what they learned, I'd still do it if there were just five people. So that thrills me no end, mate. I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. And in terms of the, the moment or the times that, that got me thinking outside the box, I think you're right. The fact that I, I haven't been born and bred inside corporate settings does help me. I can bring that outsider's point of view, but I think that's part of my personality anyway. I think even if I was born and bred inside corporate, The way my brain is wired is to not settle for what's going on around me and think what could be different here? What could we be doing differently that would jolt some life into this? So yeah, you know, coming from education for a good chunk of my career probably helped, but I think I would be like that anyway. But in terms of moments where I realized there was something to this, I remember as a deputy principal, I won't name the school because it would give some people away. I was, and I've got to say, if you're a parent, and your, your child is in school and there's a deputy principal or an assistant principal, please give that person a smile and, and give them a wave and give them some joy in their life because it is the single worst job in a school. You do everything the principal doesn't want to do. So the principal gets to pick the, the stuff they shuffle along to the deputy, which is fair enough. They're the boss. If you're a deputy principal, your phone never rings for a good reason. No one ever knocks on your door for a good reason when you're a deputy principal. It's because someone's been naughty. It's because some teachers are not getting along with each other. It's because some teacher aide won't do what a teacher wants or a teacher is being rude to a teacher aide or some parents have had a bickering fight outside over their kids or this kid's been bullied. It is endlessly negative. It's a a really super tough job. I remember one of the things that I had to do in this role as deputy was my principal said, the teacher aides are not getting on. They're bickering and fighting. Go and sort it out. So this was a room full of middle-aged women who sit in a room and they are the heart and soul of the school. They make the school tick. They do the photocopying for teachers. They do the cutting out for the, the junior school teachers who've got art and craft activities with their kids. They churn through the work. And for them to not be happy and not working smoothly was having a really big impact on the educational outcomes. 
So I went and started talking and I walked in there with this supreme confidence that I can sort this out. You know, I was probably 31 or 32 years old. I walked in there, I strutted in there. I was like, right, ladies, tell me the story and I'll, I'll give you the answer. And of course, it was much more complicated than that. There was personality issues. There was long history of not getting along with each other in this workplace. They'd been there. Some of them had worked at this school longer than I'd been alive. So there was all this history and I just sat there. My head was spinning. I was thinking, I have not only do I not have any answers for you ladies, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this room. So there was a moment there when I realized that leadership, quality leadership doesn't just happen. Quality teamwork doesn't just happen. And you can't fix a, a terrible problem overnight. You've got to play the long game with these kind of things and, and consciously, actively working on the way that you lead your staff and build your professional relationships and manage the way that your teams interact and the work they do and the quality of the workplace. Well, can you expand on that a little bit more by talking about some of the worst habits in the offices that you visited in your, the consultancy? What are some of the worst habits that you've come across that you see time and time again that seem to limit or even destroy the ability yeah. for people to do their work? Uh, look, this is such an easy question to answer, and I'm glad you you got me to flick my fe- thinking to my consulting world where I am dealing in corporate or, or large government or whatever it might be, those, those kind of professional teams. There are two things, and they're, they're very big things. Number one is being busy. And everywhere I have worked, everyone is so busy. They try and tell me, they pull me aside and they say, hey, you don't understand. In this industry, industry X, we are really busy. We're super busy. And the way that this company structured is means that we're all super busy. People get lost in their busyness. They give themselves this out that says, I don't have to think. I don't have to be creative. I don't have to take time for my colleagues. I don't have to take time to be consciously developing my own skills, whether they're technical or interpersonal, because I'm so, so, so busy. And if you meet someone in the, in the corridor, if you meet someone in the lift, and, and we did a mini episode on this, Danny, being busy. If you meet someone in the lift or in the corridor, you say, how are you? They say, oh, I'm so busy. And I, I just feel so sad and so sorry for them because by saying being busy, you're telling me a few things. Firstly, you're saying that you're just repeating the lines that you hear around yourself. There's a culture in this place of everyone being busy and you are falling into line like a robot. You think that to be relevant around here, you've got to tell me how busy you are. And secondly, it makes me think, if you, your only response to me when I ask you how you are as a human being is to tell me how busy you are, I feel sad that you're unable to prioritize what's important, not only in your life, but in your work as well. And if you're running around feeling busy all the time, then chances are you're not being clever, you're not being intelligent, you're not being creative, you're not creating great relationships along the way because you've given yourself this big out, this big excuse that says you don't have to do any of those things because you're so you're so busy. There was a book that was published a couple of years ago by an American anthropologist named David Graeber. It's called BS Jobs. Mm-hmm. Actually, the title is a little bit more salty than that, but it's <laughs> BS Jobs. But his theory was that so many institutions are filled with people doing work that they know is kind of meaningless and pointless and mm-hmm. doesn't have any deeper importance either in their lives or in the institution that they're working. Is that sort of what you're getting at a little bit too with this, I'm busy, I'm busy, pretending to be busy, trying to appear to be busy rather than actually doing meaningful work? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think even worse than that, I think people actually think they're busy. They've convinced themselves they are and they feel busy. And yes, I think there is a pointlessness to a lot of work that people who are in that mindset do. I think their work is largely pointless because they're in this flurry of meaningless activity. I think for most people who are in that position, if you really had time to sit down and understand broadly where they fit in the organization and and what they're supposed to be doing, I think there would be an absolute opportunity for them to have a meaningful job. I don't think people's work has to be BS jobs, but I think in a lot of cases, we make them BS jobs because we're happy with that low-level busyness that seems to be part of the corporate culture of so many organizations. So yeah, there's a lot of people out there churning out meaningless work, but I don't think the organization wants them to do that. I don't think that would be part of the strategic plan of any organization. I think that just happens culturally because of this busyness thing. And I don't want to overplay it, 
but I also don't want to undersell it either. I think there's two things. You asked me about a couple of things. This is number one. If we could slow down, prioritize a little more clearly, people have heard me talk about Covey so often, think about those quadrants of important and unimportant, of stuff that is urgent and not urgent. Think about those quadrants and think about how we spread our time and we spread our energy and invest a little bit more in those important but not urgent quadrants or that one quadrant that is about important but not urgent work, the work that gets ignored when we're in the busyness trap, then I think we would all find more meaning in the work we do, no matter what your role is, no matter what your place is, in no matter what organization you work in. If you were able to focus your time there, I don't think anyone would be getting upset with you. I don't think your manager would ever get upset for you to say, hey, I've been doing some more high-value, creative, thoughtful, intelligent work here. I hope you don't mind. No one's ever going to get upset about that, but it takes some discipline to break out of the busyness. And there's there's so much to that word discipline in that setting, and it, it's probably an episode all by itself. But this, as you can tell, Danny, is something that I feel really passionate about. And as I move between organizations and I meet human beings, these are human beings, mums and dads, brothers and sisters, people with a life outside of work. And for eight or nine or 10 hours of their day, they are in a frantic state of busyness where most of the work they do doesn't matter because it's all last minute rushing stuff. I feel so sad for them as a fellow human being. So is recognizing these problems inside multiple institutions that you've worked, multiple companies that you've worked for, is, is that part of the reason why you wanted to start the podcast to share some of these important lessons or important trends that you've noticed? You know, I saw this question. So by the, by the way, folks, Danny was kind enough to send me some questions in advance. So if I sound very well prepared, it's because Danny has prepared me maybe too well. I've had too long to think about these. But when I read that question, I came to a realization that I can't even really remember why I started the podcast. I, I kind of have a sense, but but whatever that reason was, it has been compounded tenfold. I have gotten so much out of the podcast that I didn't even know was possible to get out of something like this. I think when I started it, I thought, look, I'm a I'm a leadership or team or communication consultant in the early phases of my career. You know, I'd I'd flicked over from from education three or four, maybe five years earlier. And I had something to say. I'd, I'd been in the game long enough where I, I felt as though I had something to say, but I also wanted to showcase this skill that I know I have, you know, I, of talking to people and articulating myself and speaking, you know, that's part of my, my core skill. So I guess there was, if I'm honest, there was a bit of content marketing behind this. But like I say, whatever those reasons were at the beginning, I have learned so much from the podcast about myself the way I communicate, the way other people communicate, all of the topics that my guests bring to the podcast every episode, all of that stuff that I didn't even really think about when I started the podcast has enriched my life to a degree that I could never have imagined at the beginning. I used to say, being a broadcast journalist for more than a decade, that it was the best job in the world because I just got to interview, like phone up interesting people every day and talk to them. And I think so too. With you and the podcast, it's sort of the same thing. Every couple of weeks, you get to phone up some interesting author or, or thought leader and, and to kind of get a one-on-one -on -one workshop with them. It's yeah. kind of awesome, isn't it? That's exactly what it is, you know? And and over time, as I've developed my confidence as an interviewer, and it probably didn't take long before I started taking on this mindset where I just thought, hey, I've got an expert right here, whether it's down Skype or sitting right in front of me here at home. I've got an expert right here who's in my field and they're an expert in something really specific. Here is my opportunity to drill them for everything I've ever wanted to know about what they're an expert in. And that's what I do. And I do that, I think, on behalf of my audience, on behalf of my, my listeners, but I also do it for myself because I know that for uh, you know every every few guests that I have along, one of those guests is going to give me some nuggets that I am going to use in my next workshop. Where I am going, I've taken stuff that my guests have taught me and I have turned them into programs that I sell to clients. It's quite amazing the exchange of ideas and the exchange of value. And by the way, if any of my former guests are listening, I always reference you. I always say where I got this info from. Well, speaking of those guests, you've had mm. 99 of them so far. What yeah. comes to mind in terms of the favorite ones, not to pick favorites, but uh, I'm sure no one will get too jealous. 
What comes to mind um, after all these years as sort of some of the standout or one standout guest that you've had? Look, I, I knew this question was coming and it's very difficult. It's, it's kind of like picking your favorite child, although not quite as difficult as that. It's in the same ballpark. And because I wanted to get it down to one, I, I've got to say there is one clear favorite. And that is Boo Holmes. Boo Holmes was the fourth guest on my podcast. And if you have never listened to Boo Holmes, I don't exactly suggest that you do because the audio is awful. And and this is back in my days, and this is part of something we haven't even covered, Danny, is the evolution of me understanding audio. From a radio <laughs> guy point of view, you probably think I still don't understand audio, and that is probably true to a certain extent. But I've learned so much about audio over these 100 episodes, and I think I'm getting close to quality audio. It's almost become an obsession. But back in the early <laughs> days, I had no idea about quality audio. And Boo Holmes, for all his quality, and he, he and I have stayed in touch, actually, because we have a few common passions, he would not plug in a microphone, Danny. He talked into his Mac. He just sat there in a room <laughs> and talked into his Mac. He was the first episode I did over Skype. And I remember where I was. I was on my 40th birthday trip through Scotland and I I was staying in a hotel and I had to go and find this quiet place in the grand ballroom that was not being used at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. So I could dial into Boo Holmes who was in London and I had a decent mic at that stage. I had my third microphone in four episodes and it was still two microphones away from where I am now. And he, I was saying to him, mate, can you please just plug in a set of, you know, your, your iPhone headphones? He's like, no, 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 we'll be fine. And here I am, a beginning podcaster, talking to a guy who was a, an expert in his field. And I, I wasn't going to argue with him. I wasn't going to say, no, no, mate, I really need you to plug in some kind of microphone. He just wouldn't do it. Now, of course, I wouldn't episode, I wouldn't interview that person. I would, I would pause the interview and say, hey, look, you need to come back. And I've done this many times. Come back when you've got your audio sorted. But Boo Holmes, despite his stubbornness around his audio and 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 maybe that was a lesson for both of us he so beautifully articulated what it means to be a fabulous communicator i fancy myself as a good communicator i fancy myself as a as a good public speaker or facilitator or teacher but boo holmes was able to tell stories and wrap it up into concepts and leave me with three tangible unquestionable, valuable steps that I can apply to myself and I can help my clients apply to themselves to ensure that they are speaking in a way that is engaging and and at their best. So that's why Boo is my favorite episode. And despite the fact that the audio is not great, and it's probably not as bad as I've made out, but it's not great. A number of people have told me that they've listened to Boo Holmes' episode four, five, six times. One listener told me that she listens to Boo Holmes' episode any time she's about to go into a really important meeting or have an interview or try and get herself a new client as she was starting her own business. So that, that for me as a podcaster was so rewarding. And part of why I like Boo Holmes so much, he's a great guy. And as I said, we've, we've kept in touch. We met in the most beautiful way. I was on the road on my 40th birthday trip. And um, I, I got to go anywhere I wanted for my 40th birthday. So I went to London first to watch the Ashes. So Australia was playing England in cricket and it happened. So my 40th birthday year landed in an Ashes year. And then I got to go to my favorite country, which was Scotland. So on one of these days I was heading to the cricket, I was, I was in Nottingham and I was going to Trent Bridge and I didn't know the way to the ground. I was just following this crowd from the city and they were all going somewhere. So I thought, well, they must be going to the right place. And I just sort of picked out these three guys. And, you know, they were sort of my age, you know, clearly three, three lads out on a day to the cricket. And I just followed them. And this walk was going forever and ever. And eventually I just said to these guys, hey, fellas, by the way, I'm following you. I hope you're going to the cricket. And that was it. Boo was one of the guys that I was following. And he just wouldn't have it that I was going to walk to the cricket by myself. Now that I'd told them that I was heading there and they heard my accent and I was the enemy, he just had to include me in his group. So we walked now for another 10 or 15 minutes to the ground. And in that time, I just learned what a quality guy Boo Holmes was, the way he engaged with me, welcomed me into his group. And right at the end, I happened to say to him, because we were going into different parts of the ground, I said to him, well, I'm, you know, you know what, what do you do, by the way, Boo? You know, what, what do you, I don't know why I asked. It was you know, something I don't normally ask. And he said, I'm actually a communication expert. 
And a lot of my clients are in the English cricket team. And I have a lot of clients in the English Premier League and a few Formula One racing driver clients. And I thought, wow, that is so interesting. And I said, okay, see you later. And we went off and enjoyed the day of the cricket where England thrashed Australia, sadly. But I remembered his name and it wasn't too hard to find a guy on the internet called Boo Holmes. So I, I tracked him down on the internet and I said, look, I met you. I don't know if you remember, but I found your story and what you do fascinating. Would you come on my podcast? And that's where it happens. So that's why Boo's my favorite guest is because his story is fantastic. The quality of his advice is without peer. And uh, I love the story about the way we met and I got him on the podcast. You know, when you think about the problems in institutions inside companies, communication seems to be right at the top of the list. I think back to, again, some of the more troubled workplaces that I've been at in my life. And it is that problem of no one really understanding each other or being able to articulate how they're feeling to one another. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 we could and we have talked about this for episodes, you know, entire episodes in the podcast. How many episodes do you think, Danny, we've got where we just talk about communication skills? Oh, it's probably 10. Yeah, I, I was going to say even more, maybe getting up to maybe a quarter of all the episodes. Yeah, that's right. There's just so much in that. And and again, that's why why Boo is so outstanding because of all the episodes we've done about communication and there've been a lot of really good ones. Boo is the standout for me and he is still something so his three points about being a quality communicator is still something that I churn out at least once a week. Let's talk more about some of the other themes that have come up over the course of the podcast. One of them that is quite close to my heart is technology, something that I'm quite interested in as well. And, it, and you know, nary a day goes by when you don't read another headline about how automation is coming to completely upend the workforce. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you've spoken with many of these uh, futurists, others that think about this and and try to prepare organizations and individuals for the coming changes. How, how do you think about technology and how it's going to change the workforce over the next decade or two? Yeah, good question. And, and this is something that I love talking about. So rein me in, Danny, when you have to. But look, I, I my own journey as an adopter of technology has changed. I have never been a changeophobe or a laggard or a Luddite when it comes to technology, but I've never really been that champion, you know, sort of lining up for the latest iPhone. But I think I'm kind of getting there. I think I'm getting to the point where I am going to be willing to to be the one taking a risk on new technology because I'm starting to understand the value that it can have for us, not just at work, but for us as human beings at life and the way that our life and our work interact with each other. I'll give you an example. So at the moment, one of, one of my clients, uh, I've just taken on a a new client with, with a very large organization, a multinational company that you would all recognize. And they're, they're a great place to work. And they're really experimenting with being okay with flexible work arrangements. And they've got a lot of global teams. So I'm, I'm working in a couple of teams across this organization that are all global. So they say, look, you can work from anywhere. You don't need to be in the Brisbane office or in anywhere in particular, because the Singapore office is just as relevant to you as the as the Bangalore office or the, or the Beijing office, so the Brisbane office is no different, work from wherever you want. And I know even within that organization, even though the person, the client that I have in there really does feel that way, not everyone in the organization feels that way. And there is still that old stigma there for people who choose to work flexibly, where people kind of say, oh, you're working from home today. And they do these air quotes you know, you've, you've seen that, Danny, and, and what that is code for in the 1990s when you used to say, I'm working from home, that really meant I'm not working at all, but I might answer the phone if you call. Now, that's not what people mean from about working from home anymore. We are chasing this second phase of technology. There was this first phase of technology, mobile phones, internets, laptops, all that kind of stuff that connected us all the time that kind of expanded our workday and for a period of time, and it's still the case, has made our workday more burdensome because we are never disconnected from work. We can't leave the office at five o'clock and not think about work again because you've got your email, your mobile phone, your laptop, and people check those things. And that's great. That's great technology, but what it has done is blurred the lines, as we know, between life and work and it's always in the favor of the organization. It's always in the favor of work, not in life, unless you're really conscious about it. But what we're chasing now is that second phase where we say, okay, cool, it's cool. All this technology is there and it's available and there's more coming online. But what we need to do now 
is balance it with life in life's favor. And work is part of life. Our professional growth is part of life. But let's make this work for life, not just for work. So I'm really passionate about the technology that supports our ability to work flexibly. And I mean that truly flexibly. And there's, again, we've done whole episodes on this. In fact, we did a whole episode on this with my wife. But it's not just the technology, it's the mindset that goes with it. And as leaders, like anything in an organization, we have a leading role to play in this not only being accepted, but being encouraged. Because if we are allowing technology to help our staff, our teammates, our leaders, our everybody enjoy life more because they have more balance, they're able to work when suits them, they're able to live life when suits them, they're able to give us what they can give us at their best, as the best version of themselves, then we're all winners in that. But it takes an enormous change in mindset. And we all know that organizations talk the talk about flexibility and diversity and, and inclusion, and they mean it and they want it to be true. But when it comes down to it, it takes an individual manager or leader or boss to say it's okay. And it takes individuals within teams to make it happen and to do it really overtly and do it in a really positive, creative, productive way that works for work and life. And then we'll get some momentum. And of course, there are companies that are far further ahead than others in this, but we all know in, in companies, there are pockets of greatness and there are pockets of really old-fashioned rigidity, which is just sucking the life out of human beings. As the world becomes connected, they're expected to work in a really rigid, unimaginative way. All right. We're getting a little bit short on time. So let's do a couple of wrap-up questions. Mm -hmm. um, one of them that I wanted to get to was thinking back over the last 100 episodes, mm -hmm. what is the one big lesson or maybe a couple of big lessons that you've really taken away? Something that you really didn't know until you started this podcast that has really seeped into either your professional or, or your personal life? Wow. In terms of things that I didn't know before I started this podcast, there is a million of them, too many to list. But I think in my mind, and this is, this is how my mind tends to work, I kind of chunk them into big things, big concepts that are important to me. And, and the thing, the way that the podcast has changed my life is kind of solidified for me thinking that I might have already had that I, I wasn't able to articulate or put labels on or really think clearly, think through clearly. And that is, and this is going to sound really vague, I think, but what it all comes down to is, is this for me, Danny, we get one shot at life and we are all, when it comes down to it, just hoping to be happy. And to be happy, we need a few things. We need to feel productive and worthwhile. We need to feel as though we have a value. And we also need to have pleasure in life. And pleasure comes from relationships and the things that we choose to do. So what, what the podcast has taught for me, and every guest has contributed to this in some way, is that I more than ever, and I think I always tended to this anyway, but I, I'm more so than ever because of the podcast, and I will always be this way, and very consciously aware of the choices that I make in life and whether they are helping me to live the type of life that I want to live. Is this making me happy? Is this making me more productive? Is it giving me more joy in life? I think as a result of the podcast, I refuse to drift along in life anymore without making conscious decisions to be, again, this is a, a nerd alert, to be the best version of myself that I can be. And that's a cliche for a reason because it's really meaningful that best version of yourself. So the podcast has taught me that and it comes out in the way that I speak. It comes out in the way that my wife and I speak with each other and the nature of our relationship. It comes out in the way I deal with all my clients and my close friends and everything that I do in life that I am not drifting through letting myself be kind of, you know, the victim or the, the result of life. I am driving my own outcomes in life and really enjoying it. And, and it's a conscious thing. How's that for an answer, mate? Is that too vague? Not at all. I really like that. I think it's uh, very important to understand how important it is to, as you say, kind of consciously live your life rather than float around. I think everybody can feel in their lives how, how they do do that. They just sort mm. of, again, go by, by rote, by muscle memory uh, yeah. rather than making uh, conscious choices. And I guess that maybe flows into the next question, which would be if there was one thing or maybe a few things mm. 
that you could change about how we work, yeah. what would it be? I, I think you kind of just played into one there with your earlier answer, but not just doing it because it's been done before. But can you give me a few others, like some other things that you'd love to see changed inside companies around the globe? Yeah, I can give you three, and and I can give you three because you gave me good warning about this question, and I was I was able to think it through. Look, there are three things that we could change, or, or some some organisations and some individuals within organisations do this already. But you know, my my pledge to you is to do it more consciously, all the time, every day, relentlessly. Number one is work to our strengths, and we've heard this before. I've mentioned it a million times on the podcast before. There are people who have made careers talking about it. Working to your strengths is so important for a heap of reasons, and the least of which is that it makes you happy. If you're able every day in your work to do the things that you're good at, the things that you feel as though you're contributing valuably through, the things that make you shine, make you feel proud, make you feel good about yourself, the things that you do better than the average bear then that is going to give you just so much reward in work. And I unashamedly pursue this in my own work. I unashamedly think about the things that I'm good at. And and that's strange in itself. I don't know about you guys in Canada, Danny, but here in Australia, although we joke about it, we don't actually ever really talk about to our peers or our friends or our family what we're good at. It's a bit of a, a social faux pas. And I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to be really clear about the things that I think I'm good at, the things that I like to do in my work and my life. And I'm also okay with the things that I'm not good at. That's the flip side of that. But if we're really clear about the things that we're good at and we can pursue those and we can get even better at those by investing our finite resources into developing our thing, the things that are already strengths in our lives, then our work and our life will just be so much more fruitful and productive and rewarding. We can strut around the place feeling confident in our contribution. So that's number one is to work to our strengths. And I'm really passionate about that. And I don't know if you want to talk in between each of these, Danny, or if I should just keep listing the three. No, keep on going. This is great. So work to your strengths. Number two is to stimulate ourselves and each other. And what I mean by that is growth. Look, I've just finished. I worked long-term with a client where I was leading a small team. And one of the mantras we came up with in a team is, hey, if we just focus on our own professional growth, then the work will get done. And I really mean that. If we've employed the right people, if we've got the right direction in our team, if we're doing the right stuff, if we forget about the work now, let's not stress about the work and let's absolutely not ever feel busy, but let's feel as though we're growing as professionals, we're learning new things, we're developing, then the work will get done. And it won't just get done. It will get done by people with energy and enthusiasm, people who have got this creative spark because the, the thing that's at the forefront of their mind is how am I growing professionally? For me, that's really important. I, I, in my workshops, talk about the three things leaders should do, the three things leaders do do, and that is articulate a vision, motivate my people towards that vision, and the third one is develop my people. And it's that third one that leaders so often forget. People are normally pretty good at saying, okay, this is our vision, this is where we're heading. And people know they should be motivating their staff towards that vision. But when we get busy and when we get locked into management mindset rather than leadership mindset, the thing that we forget that is a responsibility of good leaders is that we need to be developing our people. If someone comes into my team this year and leaves my team in four years' time and all they've done is produce good work, then I've failed as a leader. Because what they need to do when they leave me in two or three or four years' time is leave me in a much evolved state as a professional. Because as a leader, I have done everything I can to work with them, to give them opportunities, to watch them grow, to encourage them so that they have developed as a professional. That is my number one obligation to the people I work with. And number three, and this is the most important thing, and this is deliberately I want to leave it this way, is to remember the humanity. Remember that when we go to work, everyone who sits in cubicle land around us, everyone who is in those meetings with us is a human being with a story. And you know this, you know this rationally, but so often organizations encourage us to forget this. Everyone in those meetings is a dad, a mom, a daughter, a sister, an auntie, an uncle, a person with a life, 
a person with hobbies, a person with ambitions, hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, things they're proud of, things they're not proud of. Let's remember that number one. Let's remember that first and let that be the thing that guides the way we interact with each other and do our work. Let it be the thing that guides when I expect you to be at work in the morning or whether I expect you to come to work or not, whether you can work from the coffee shop or at home so you can walk your son to school and have that magic 15 minutes with him every day that will change the shape of your relationship with him forever. Rather than expecting you to be at your desk at 8.30 in the morning instead of walking him to school for no real reason, just because habit suggests that you need to be at your desk at 8.30 and lose that opportunity forever for you to develop that type of relationship. Now, that's just one almost pithy example. But imagine if we actually remembered the humanity. And instead of expecting you to be at work at your desk at 8.30, Danny, I gave you an opportunity to walk your boy to school every day. That would absolutely fundamentally change the relationship with your boy. And if we could do that in multiple ways for everyone who works in our teams, in our organizations, then the world all of a sudden is a completely different place. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go out and and an important lesson for everyone listening to think that the old, maybe for lack of a better term, more authoritarian way of operating is passe, I think, and doesn't necessarily produce good work. If anything, it produces a bunch of miserable people, which has a pretty negative knock-on effect inside the company. It sure does. It's a great way to go out, David. Thank you so much for these 100 episodes and here's to 100 more. Thank you so much, Danny. I appreciate that. It's been such a thrill. I really have enjoyed being on the other side of the mic, although I think there might have been times where I I, I might have taken over a little bit, mate. (laughs) No problem. Thanks again. David's passion for creating a better workplace is absolutely infectious, and I hope you took something special from this week's episode. We'll be back with regular episodes hosted by David in two weeks' time. Until then, you can read more about this week's episode, including David's lessons, and you can share your thoughts at teams.guru. Teams.guru.